This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Tom Hartman program, The Young Turks, The Progressive, The Majority Report, The David Pakman Show, The Onion Radio News, NPR, Mumi Abu-Jamal, and a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Young Turks. This absolutely bizarre piece of legislation seems like it's heading for Congress right as we speak. Chris Anders is with us. uh, Chris is the senior legislative counsel with the Washington Legislative Office of the ACLU. That's the DCACLU.org. And Chris, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. Thank you for joining us, Chris. I assume uh, legislative counsel means you're an attorney? Yes, it does. Okay, so you can can speak uh, of of this with uh, perhaps a little more authority than just the average... um, political observer am i correct and i i first started getting emails about this a week or so ago and people were saying you know uh, tom if they decide that uh, you're a terrorist or that they suspect that you're a terrorist they can just lock you up and make you vanish for the rest of your life and nobody will ever know and i'm like come on you've been you've been listening to alex jones you know uh, it's it's and and then i read your piece so by the aclu uh, I actually I read it on Common Dreams. Senators demand the military lock up American citizens in a battlefield they define as being right outside your window, and said to myself, "Holy cow, uh, these people were not uh, hysterics." And uh, so let me let me just ask you: Is this true? It is, and it, and it's amazing. You would think that this is some huge conspiracy theory uh, generated kind of thing. Um, but this this is for real, and this is being debated um, literally right now. Actually, the senators just left for a lunch break, uh, but it was debated this morning on the Senate floor. It's going to get a vote um, at about 2.15, somewhere between 2.15 and 2.30. So a lot of senators are still making up their mind. Most of them had not seen this language and hadn't looked at it until just a few days ago. So most of them are still making up their mind literally right now. Um, so it's a good time for people to hear from uh, uh, constituents, but the other thing too is that is that this is so this is so uh, uh, extreme um, that uh, that it does involve American citizens. It does involve uh, people who could be picked up even in the United States itself um, and be put into military prisons uh, potentially for the rest of their lives without ever being charged with a crime. And one of the the most amazing exchanges this morning. On the Senate floor was Senator Rand Paul from uh, Tea Party Republican from Kentucky, um, who actually is opposing these provisions, uh, which is good for him. Yeah. Um, he asked Senator McCain, who's supporting them, he said, well, isn't it true that American citizens could be picked up by the military, not charged with any crime, and sent to Guantanamo? And uh, John McCain didn't deny it. <laughs> Instead, yeah. he, he started talking about, well, how American citizens, if they're a threat to their country, um, have put themselves in the in the camp of being enemy belligerents and should be treated that way. Now, we used to have a law that was passed during Reconstruction in the 1870s, as I recall, maybe late 1860s, yep. Posse Capitatus, which said that, you know, we just suffered a horrible civil war. Never again will federal military forces have the legal authority to turn their guns on American citizens on American soil. That was repealed during the Bush administration in one of these military appropriations bills. We no longer have Posse Comitatus. So the military... Well, I, no, actually, that was, that was actually then restored later. <laughs> so, oh, it was. So it's still, it's still good law. It was, it was uh, for about a year, 
Um, the Posse Comitatus Act had, had, was riddled with loopholes. Um, but then a year later, Congress came to its senses, realized what it had done, and put put the pieces back together. Well, you know, Baruch Hashem for that, but uh, thank God for that. But uh, then doesn't this contradict that? It does, and that's and that's one of the other concerns we have is that this this law has been around for about 140 years. That basically said that that the military cannot be used for law enforcement within the United States. But here's the problem: is that a lot of people have counted on that protection almost like it's part of the Constitution, but it's not. And instead, it's just a law, a statute. And so it's only as good as the commitment of every future Congress and every future president to uphold it and not to not to carve exceptions to it right so so it's not it's only the protection is only as good as this congress's commitment to it and well or the executive branch could just choose not to enforce it the way that ronald reagan stopped enforcing the sherman antitrust act and its and its followers back in 1982 i mean it's still on the books and i think you know but the concern we have here is that is that this is being this is something that is being this legislation is being rushed through um, the Senate, the Senate, um, right. it's already, there's a different version of this already passed the House uh, back in May. With this nasty uh, language in it? Well, it's actually, it's actually in some ways, in some ways worse. I, it doesn't have, it doesn't have all these detention provisions in, but that, the, on the House side, the defense authorization bill has in it a worldwide, essentially a worldwide declaration of war. So it's basically a worldwide authorization for the president, this president, any future president, to use military force anywhere where a terrorism suspect. So here we are, 1984, perpetual peace by, <laughs> by virtue of perpetual war. Um, they, I, here's, first of all, I understand that Senator Udall has proposed an amendment to strip out the awful language on that. Yeah. Um, and everybody should be, callcongress.org call has the phone numbers that you can use to call Congress. And, you know, it's, uh, um, you know, just, you should be calling Congress now and say, support Senator Udall's, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it, amendment? Yeah. But, but in a, in a, or, or just tell them no. But this, this, it's like, what can we do? I mean, you know, where do we go with this? Is this is going to have to go back to a joint House Senate Conference Committee, right? Because these are not. We're just going to start almost right away. I mean, we're going to try to jam this through within the next week. And then the president has to sign it. And so there's still two more points of pressure for those of us who are genuinely horrified by this. Yes, and and the good, you know, the good thing with the president is that is that the White House has threatened to veto it. Um, The Director of National Intelligence, the Secretary of Defense. And the director of the FBI, uh, Robert Mueller, have all come out against these provisions. Wow! But, but the but the problem is that that this is something that is being pushed by Senator Levin, a Democrat from Michigan, this, these bad provisions, and John McCain, and they are they are pulling out all the stops. I'm totally to baffled this by this, Chris. You know, John McCain was the guy who said torture is wrong. He, he you know he'd been there and and traditionally had been a little libertarian ish and carl levin you know i mean i i used to live in michigan i mean you know mm-hmm. i keep i've kept track of carl levin's career over the years he's a pretty good guy what what are these people thinking he is i think i think it became um you know it became something that they felt like there became a kind of a frenzy on on the armed services committee uh this uh late spring to do something about detention and they started drafting and and it seems like they just kind of got carried away and this is this is part of what happens when you when you hide the ball on the American public because there wasn't a single hearing on this and it was a closed markup which means 
which means nobody saw this language until it was a done deal. Wow. And and if this thing had you know seen the light of day, and there had been hearings on it, and and people had an opportunity to look at it, people like you and you, and your listeners had an opportunity to see it. Then, then we wouldn't be in this mess we are right now in the Senate floor. People would have weighed in long or earlier and said, said, no, 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 you shouldn't be doing this. Right. But now they dug, they've dug in their heels on this, and it's kind of come hell or high water. They're going to try to get this through the Senate. Sometimes I need some time alone to just be unhappy. Defense Authorization Act has basically made it through Congress. They've got agreement on it. And uh, it, what it does is it allows for indefinite detentions of uh, enemy combatants. The military gets to decide who's an enemy combatant. And it, it operates on U.S. soil and can apply to American citizens. So it's horrible. It destroys the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendments. And uh, Posse Comitatus Act becomes uh, irrelevant. That means the military can act within the United States. Uh, plus, it really goes to the foundation of Western law in questioning habeas corpus. And Congress, as we just told you, has agreed. But President Obama was threatening a veto. And we were at least happy that President Obama was on that side of the issue. But some people have been dissenting voices, including John Wood of Change.org, saying, no, wait a minute, the president is objecting uh, to uh, Section 1032 of this bill, not 1031, that is the portion about it applying to United States citizens on U.S. soil, etc. So you're giving him credit for the wrong things. In fact, Glenn Greenwald at Salon has also written about that and saying the president actually wants more power not less power and his veto threat is not something that is done to protect our civil liberties well uh, those were all interesting theories until Senator Carl Levin uh, went on the floor of Congress and told us at least based on what he's saying here if he's telling the truth that in fact President Obama wanted it to be the exact opposite not that he thought it had too much power in the bill, but that the executive should have more power. Let's let Carl Levin explain. The administration asked us to remove the language which says that U.S. citizens and lawful residents would not be subject to this section. Is the senator familiar with the fact that it was the administration that asked us to remove the very language which we had in the bill which passed the committee and that we removed it at the request of the administration that would have said the app that this determination would not apply to U.S. citizens and lawful residents. Now, Senator Levin is the guy who crafted that uh, portion of the bill, and if he's telling the truth here, he's saying President Obama came in and said, "No, no, no, I want to make this bill even well." He wouldn't put it this way. I would even worse, even more of an abuse of civil liberties by making sure that I can also indefinitely detain United States citizens. That's the worst part of the bill. If Senator Levin is right about what happened there, then President Obama is 
again, not on the right side of this issue, he's on the wrong side of the issue. And that he wanted to do the veto threat so that he could have more power, not less power. And abuse our Constitution and our civil liberties more, not less. Well, I mean, that's so disappointing that I, I can't take it anymore. I mean, I, so what does that mean that I can't take it? I mean, you've seen me criticize President Obama over and over again. It's not that I'm shy about that. It's that if this is true, I almost literally don't see the point of supporting President Obama anymore. I, I'm not mincing words. I don't see the point. And somebody will have to try to figure out, you know, I guess go ahead and try to convince me, write comments, send us emails through theyoungturks.com, participate through current.com slash theyoungturks. You tell me why I'm supposed to vote for this guy. But if he really, this so-called constitutional law professor, has such little respect for our Constitution that he's willing to shred it like that, well, he's, in some ways, he's worse than a Republican. Why? Now, first of all, I think Newt Gingrich is a danger to the Republic, right? But is Newt Gingrich going to propose something worse than indefinitely detaining American citizens without a trial? I, I'm not sure I can think of anything worse. Is he going to propose or do something worse than kill United States citizens abroad without a trial, which is what uh, President Obama has done with drone strikes? I, I'm not sure I can imagine something worse. So, and then the really harmful part of President Obama is he totally gets, unfortunately, a large portion of the left to stand down. If President Bush put this bill forward, the left would have been in a rage, in a rage. Outside of our show, Countdown, people like Glenn Greenwald, and a couple of other shows, I see nothing Mainstream media, of course, is, as always, is oblivious. They're like, what's Jerry Sandusky doing? I don't even know how many times they've even talked about this or even noted that there is some outrage behind it. And then where are the activists? Where's the left? Where are the Democrats? You know Al Franken voted for this? What the hell was the point of sending him to the Senate? Are you kidding me? They gut our Constitution like this? And the President Obama goes, no, 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 it's okay. I put the... Democratic seal of approval on it, so everybody shut up, stand down, and let's do exactly what the right wing wants to do and, and, and destroy our civil liberties. Well, then he's of no use that he doesn't help the country, he hurts the country. Look, man, this is an interactive show. If I got it wrong, you tell me, you, you show me. And don't, please don't come to me with weak sauce stuff about how, oh, no, 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 but you don't understand. Congress is so important. He couldn't get beyond Congress. Well, here's Senator Levin. Again, if he's telling the truth, saying, no, 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 he went to Congress and said, you're not right-wing enough. I need you to be far more right-wing. And second of all, when Bush was in charge, Congress, he had majorities, didn't have majorities, he didn't give a damn, he got everything he wanted. Back then, the president was incredibly strong. Now you're going to get me to believe the president is incredibly weak and has to do everything the Republicans tell him to do? No, he wants to do it. That's what makes me particularly sick. Let's hope that Senator Levin is a liar. But I don't think so. It doesn't look like it at the moment being. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. 
By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. Late last week, President Obama expanded the repressive apparatus that Bush and Cheney had put in place before him by signing the National Defense Authorization Act. This act grants the president the authority to put into military detention indefinitely anyone he alleges to be a member of al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or associated forces, whatever that means. The same goes for anyone he says is supporting belligerent acts against the U.S., however those are defined. But one thing's clear, indefinite detention is against international law, and by signing this bill, Obama's making it official, the U.S. is a lawless country. Obama got Congress to make a slight modification of the bill to muddy the language to make it seem like it didn't apply to U.S. citizens. But a careful reading of that language by Patricia Williams and Glenn Greenwald shows that the act does indeed give the president the right to hold even U.S. citizens indefinitely without trial. It was always a thin reed to hold on to, this distinction between the rights of citizens and non-citizens. Under the Geneva Conventions, everyone's supposed to have equal protections. But now even this reed has been pulled away, and with it, your constitutional rights. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. For you so proud and powerful, the devil bring me luck. Go searching for your solace when your name goes through the muck. When every breath you take will be a thorn in good men's sides Then even you might beat the drums of freedom For maidens in the morning who wake with reddened eyes Remembering lovers lost in rising with the lark's first cry and never tasting love again till youth is almost gone. Well, even you will be the drums of freedom. Uh, the number is 646 257 3920. 646 257 3920. Let's uh, pick up uh, right with this person. Uh, Hello? This is Mary. I'm calling on behalf of Verizon. Sir, do you make decisions about phone and Internet for the business? Uh, do I do? Yes, I do. Great. Uh, it's, uh, in regards to files of the Verizon services that could benefit a business, I just want to ask you some questions. Sure. What is ex exactly that your business does? Well, I use a lot of Internet, actually. I do um, an Internet uh, radio program um, and, uh, you know, Great. create, yeah. Terrific. Who do you have right now for the phone internet carrier? RCN. Okay. How's this uh, speed on the internet for you? Great. It's great. Oh, okay. Have you ever done a speed test to see if it's exactly what you're paying for? Mm, uh, occasionally, you know, but I'll, I'll do one. I'll check it out. Did you hear about this National Defense Authorization Act? What is it called? The National Defense Authorization Act. It was um, it was a bill signed into law actually on New Year's Eve. Uh, a weird time to do that. Well, and it was about the um, 
uh, it, uh, one of the things in it allows for uh, our government to detain citizens indefinitely without any type of legal recourse. Wow. You follow the Occupy uh, movement crazy. at all? Occupy Wall Street? Any of that? Well, no, I don't have too much time, but I know they do it. I'm in Erie, Pennsylvania. I know we have a little group downtown. Do they do it there where you are in New York? Oh, I imagine where you're in New York City. Yeah. You should you should check that out. Those uh, You should go down there. I'm having a hard time. I'm sorry? I have like a, I'm not really an echo, but I'm having a hard time hearing you. That's, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Um. Well, uh, I don't know. I'll have to try to read up about that myself. I didn't. Yeah, no, I haven't heard about that. What is that act about? Well, it is part of you know the uh, annual defense authorization bill where they fund the the military. But uh, basically, they threw in there this provision that allows our government to detain uh, citizens indefinitely. I mean, oh. ostensibly, it is if you are. Uh, you know, involved in uh, terrorist acts or in any way supportive of terrorism. But, you know, the the uh, definition of terrorism has gotten wider and wider. Yeah. So. Well, I'm going to have to start following up that stuff a little bit more. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what. Let me uh, do a yeah. speed test. I've got to gotta jump uh, right now. But I gotta, uh, I'll do I can hold on. That's it. Yeah, I, I, we have files available. We can. We've been saving other businesses money on their musty phone internet bill, upgrading them to files. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you, you give me? Can I, can I? Can I take your number? I'll call you back. Sure. It's one eight seven seven. Yeah. Two nine eight. Yeah. Three one seven one. Okay. And my uh, extension is zero one three. It's zero one three nine. My extension. Zero. One three nine. Okay, great. Thank you, Mar Mary. Mary. Uh -huh. All right. Well, thank you, Mary. I really appreciate it. Sure. Okay, I'll sure, talk to you. Give me a call back. Thank you. Have a great day. Okay, you too. Bye. Thanks. Bye bye. And what I'm taking out of all this is FiOS has hit Manhattan. Well, that's the thing. I, I mean, I'm. Uh, uh, we're gonna we're gonna get in touch because I want the, I want some of that FiOS. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I want that FiOS. I don't, you know, well, yeah, she's down uh, 646-257-3920. Uh, so uh, maybe we'll get Fios. She was also very uh, open. Okay, what, what do you think is the best thing, of, the thing about the show that is best and most appealing to, to somebody who listens or watches? Um, let's see. You see, I would have to think about that. <laughs> is this, is this the, that hard of a question? Is it that is. What? It is a hard question. It's like, what is the meaning of life? You can't just, uh, you can't just throw something out there. All right, well, you know what? None of us know what the, what, what's good about this show. None what we know is we have a show. We know the show exists. Pretty much. Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Back on the show, I got a uh, very well-researched email from uh, a listener named Jonathan who heard our segment, Lewis, about left and right-wing terrorism and domestic terrorism and Muslim terrorism. 
and he emailed me. He did his own research, and he discovered um, a website that actually gives you a list of various terrorist groups in the United States. And he made brilliantly a, a, a list of actual left-wing groups and right-wing groups. And Lewis, what's, we've got a variety of songs playing in the background, which I don't think are part of the terrorism yeah. segment. No, no, it's this, new, it's this new system I'm working with here. It's just... Uh, You're getting the kinks worked out of it. Yeah. So we seem to have some terroristic seasons in the U.S., right? So, uh, and they seem to follow Democratic presidents. According to the FBI, we had an explosion of right-wing terrorism in the 90s when Bill Clinton was president of the United States. It declined very quickly after George W. Bush took office, and then, predictably, right-wing terrorism back up after 2008 when Barack Obama becomes president. That we've tracked, the FBI has acknowledged it. What is really wrong with this is that when a group of people disagrees with whoever is in power, not both sides are going to start to plan ricin attacks and uh, various shoot -em up type of scenarios. It's very, very specific, and it is coming from the right wing. And Jonathan got into an argument with a friend of his who argued there are actually more left-wing terror groups in the United States than right-wing terror groups. And uh, it doesn't seem to be true. Jonathan did the research, and very, very clearly here, he made a list. And it appears that there are basically on the left, there are three terrorist organizations, the American Front, the Black Revolutionary Assault Team, and the May 19 Communist Order United Freedom Front. Okay. On the right, there's a lot. I think it's something like 17, and this list is outdated because the Georgia militiamen are not yet on this list. Some of the other recent right-wing terror incidents are not yet on this list. We've got the first mechanical Kansas militia. We've got the Mountaineer militia, the Patriots Council, the Secret Army Organization. I mean, look at this list, Lewis. It's, uh, it's pretty long. The Third Continental Congress, the Arizona Patriots, the Sheriff's Posse, the Republic of Texas, the Washington State Militia. So this is brilli a brilliantly researched by Jonathan. Thank you for sending this in. It seems very, a lot of things are very, very clear here, Lewis. Number one, that right-wing terror is an exponentially bigger problem in the United States than left-wing terror is, which we knew. Mm -hmm. But number two, that there seems to be a wave of domestic terrorism that follows democratic presidents who often are not that much more liberal than the conservative presidents, right? I mean, by and large, there's a pretty narrow scope within which you can be and still be elected president of the U.S. Mm -hmm. And it seems even though small and even more narrow under which you can operate as president of the United States. Absolutely. You can, you can run with more latitude than you can actually operate the mm -hmm. country, as we've seen with Barack Obama. And it's abundantly clear that right-wing terror seems to be a real problem in this country, which we knew. We've put up the map many times. We've done, who knows at this point, 10 or 15 stories over the last few years on right-wing domestic terror attacks. Mm -hmm. uh, brilliant information from Jonathan on this. Uh, really well done. Right, and usually uh, when there is a left-wing terror attack, uh, and anytime we, you know, people mention a right-wing terror attack, someone from the right uh, counters it with something from that they deem to be a left-wing terror attack. And usually it's something along the lines of, uh, you know, setting SUVs on fire, slashing the tires. Uh, very rarely are people getting shot at and or killed. Somebody threw eggs once. Whereas on the right, it's uh, it's usually a lot more violent. That's the whole other next layer, which is the disproportionate nature of the of the context too. I made your brother bleed. I made your father scream. And I made your mother say those things that she said to me. She said, "Do with me what you want, but."
It's the Onion Radio News. 98% of Americans are afraid of 98% of Americans. This is Doyle Redland reporting. An ABC News Washington Post poll released today indicates that 98% of Americans live in fear of a full 98% of other Americans. Washington Post reporter Carl Zerling. Between the criminals, salesmen, religious zealots, alcoholics, minorities, majorities, immigrants, fast-driving teens, employers, and panhandlers, a total of 49 in 50 Americans present a fearsome image to the vast majority of their fellow citizens. The remaining non-feared 2% include newborn babies, the extremely elderly, and former star of Frasier, Kelsey Grammer. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. Hey, baby, I hear the blues are calling tossed salads and scrambled eggs. And maybe I seem a bit confused. Yeah, maybe, but I got you pegged. But I don't know what to do with those tossed salads and scrambled eggs. They're calling again. Scrambled eggs all over my face. What is a boy to do? Now let me see if I understand you. The problem I seek you say. Oh my. And maybe I'm often misconstrued. But babe, I'll never pull your leg. Mercy. The weapons of the so-called war and terror are coming home, but they're not being put away. Instead, they're being put to use by local law enforcement, sometimes for the most petty crime scene. A North Dakota family farm, for instance, had six of its cows go missing one day in June. When the sheriff investigated, three men with rifles chased him off, the L.A. Times reported. So instead of just calling in backup, the sheriff called in a drone. Yep, one of those predator drones that the U.S. has been using in Afghanistan and Pakistan hovered for hours over the ranch and gave the sheriff the intelligence he needed to capture the intruders. Local police say this isn't the only time they've used the predators. Unarmed predator drones have helped them with at least two dozen surveillance flights since June. According to the L.A. Times, these flights occur without a warrant and may very well violate the Posse Comitatus Act, which says the U.S. military can't be patrolling the country. Congress made an exception for the border areas back in 2005, but right now it looks like predators are flying all over the country. State and local law enforcement are using predators, acknowledged the retired Air Force general in charge of them. So beware, these predators are preying on our privacy rights. The police aren't supposed to have the Pentagon on call. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as five dollars a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Every week it seems there are reports about U.S. drones, unmanned, remote-controlled aerial vehicles tracking down suspected terrorists in remote, unreachable areas of Yemen, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan. But drones may soon be coming 
to a place near you. The technology is almost as accessible and affordable as a toy. My daughters have a remote-controlled helicopter, $29.99, batteries included. That worries of its two tiny plastic blades. Now, it is a toy, too small to carry a camera, much less explosives. The only attack it can launch is on a father's shins. Drones, in a sense, have been around as long as people have been flying remote-controlled airplanes, right? As long as hobbyists have been doing it. Shane Harris is a journalist and author of The Watchers, The Rise of America's Surveillance State. We asked Mr. Harris and John Villasenor, a professor of electrical engineering at UCLA and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, to come into our studios to talk about drones over America, the benefits that many people see, and potential threats to homeland security and U.S. interests abroad. Shane Harris began talking about the potential uses many people see in drones. The Customs and Border Protection unit of the Homeland Security Department is experimenting with drones that are about the size of small birds for doing uh, monitoring the border, monitoring people and, and traffic coming over the border. Um, drones have been used after natural disasters to go in and look for survivors. Uh, we actually saw that in Japan at the uh, Fukushima plant. Drones were used to go in and inspect the facilities there. Imagine that you are running a SWAT team in a crisis, uh, hostage crisis standoff situation, and rather than put one of your officers in harm's way to go inspect what's going on inside the house, you have a drone the size of a spider that can skitter up onto the windowsill and look inside the window and see what's going on. You're likely to see drones used in mass farming where you might have uh, crop dusters replaced by drones. You might have drones that go out and hover over livestock herds and actually herd cattle. Why not? Uh, you might see traffic helicopter pilots being replaced by drones. These are some of the near-term uses that really make a lot of sense and that the technology could do right now if it were put to use that way. Could the same technology be used to fly a jumbo jet? Theoretically, yes. Maybe one day UPS and FedEx will no longer have people flying their cargo planes. Uh, it could certainly be much more efficient. They could perhaps fly routes that human beings can't fly. They certainly don't have to take breaks the way that humans do. Um, then that sort of raises the question, well, would we ever feel comfortable, we people getting on a Delta on an American Airlines flight that didn't have a pilot in it? Well, and uh, as you say, drones don't need brakes. So right. there's no cancellation because the crew just got in from Rochester and sure. they, have to be, they have to break for 12 hours before sure. they can fly. Absolutely. Okay. Um, let's bring in now John uh, Villasenor, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Uh, are there national security implications in all this? I certainly think there are. One thing that, that I've noticed is that the dialogue is almost always carried out from our perspective. How should we use drones? Should we use drones? Uh, should we expand our use of drones? And I think uh, with the inevitable proliferation issues, we have to also consider the, the inverse problem, which is what happens when people consider using drones against us. And uh, to the extent that drones are becoming significantly smaller, more widely available, and less expensive, it becomes um, more difficult to ensure that they don't fall into the wrong hands. Carefully, could you give us an example? Drones obviously fly. We have a society where we have walls and fences and gates to prevent people from going places that they shouldn't go, and uh, if you can fly, you can obviously go over those walls and fences and gates, and so drones uh, can do that and make it possible for a larger set of people to do that in, in ways that weren't possible or, or at least weren't easy mm -hmm. um, before. We've heard that uh, Om Shumrikyo at one point was interested in acquiring drones. Do you know about that? 
yes, my understanding from reading uh, the stories about that is that they, I believe it was helicopters that they were pondering using in some of the attacks they eventually did carry out in Tokyo, although I also understand that in the end they, of course, uh, decided to use other means. But it's a it's a sobering example because here you have a group of people who were absolutely bent on and, in fact, did create a terror attack. And it's in the Tokyo subway system. In the Tokyo people. Yes, in the Tokyo subway system a number of years ago, and drones uh, were absolutely on their radar screen. So it stands to reason that they will be on the radar screen of, of other such groups uh, in the future. What kind of different or advanced step does this represent about the the threats that we can already identify? I think what's notable about this is is the speed at which the technology has changed. It's almost been while we weren't looking. If you look at what you can put in your pocket these days in terms of a smartphone, the capabilities that, that smartphones have, that same technology now makes it possible to have drones which can literally fit in a backpack or the trunk of a car or even the palm of your hand. And so you can imagine a world where you might be being attacked not by one drone but by a swarm of 150 of them. And and how in the world would you uh, defend against that? And you might consider that, well, at the cost of some very large amount of money, maybe you could put some defensive system that would actually uh, somehow take these down, but then you'd have to be careful that you don't simply vaporize every poor sparrow that happens to fly near a government building. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a complicated situation. Mm. Let's bring in Shane Harris again, author of The Watchers, The Rise of America's Surveillance State. As you see it, Mr. Harris, what are some of the implications for privacy? No, I think there are really profound implications. The machines can do things that we can't do, mm-hmm. right? The machines can watch in ways that we can't watch. When you're talking about putting up a drone with a camera versus, you know, having a cop on a stakeout, let's say, sitting outside a house, um, it just, it, it's sort of, it, it's a much more profound kind of sense of invasion, too, because now you're talking not just about the limits of surveillance being how many cops can we put on the street or how many helicopters can we put over the air, but really these very small systems, dozens of them, let's just say, over at pick a neighborhood, put them there. Um, to me, that's really what we haven't kind of started to, to really address from the standpoint of how these things are going to start proliferating. And once they're out there, it's going to be very hard to pull them back, I think. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you both. Is, is there a kind of drone arms race going on uh, where, where the major participants aren't just one, two, or three countries, but many more? Uh, Shane Harris first. Yeah, I think that, that there is there is a, a race starting in this area. So there are right now about 50 countries that use surveillance drones, not very many that use armed drones the way that we do. But um, a, a lot of the sort of rising superpowers, China being a great example, recently had a, a big air show where they displayed many of the drones that they're trying to build and sort of trumpeted the fact that in various animations that they put out for people to see that they're building drones that can go out and attack aircraft carriers that look suspiciously like U.S. aircraft carriers. So they are definitely sending a signal to us and to other countries that you're not the only ones who are going to be able to build these things and to fly them. We're there, too, and we want it as well. John Senior. Yeah, the, the China case is particularly interesting. Uh, there was a detailed and very informative article in the Washington Post about the Chinese drone program stating the Chinese apparently have a, an intent not only to develop these things, but to also aggressively market them on the international market. So it's not only the 50 countries, including a very prominent and rich one like China, that might develop forms of the technology we'd have to worry about, but it's the 100 countries they can sell it to. 
And that's a great point. And I think the reason this can happen is that this technology, in many ways, isn't much different than what you have in a smartphone or a tablet or a laptop computer. That's why all these people can have access to it. It's, you know, this isn't your father's drone where you had to be a very, very well-funded, very sophisticated military laboratory. In fact, a lot of the parts for these drones are available at uh, electronic stores in every country in the world. Without getting carried away and recognizing a lot of projections turn out very differently than what people thought. Are, are we at the point where, I mean, if I feel something in the back of my neck, it's, it's either a gnat or a Chinese drone? Next year, no. I think if you feel something on the back of your neck, it's probably a mosquito. But 7, 8, 10, 15 years from now, um, it, it's certainly, I think, going to be possible to have uh, drones that are incomprehensibly small by today's standards. And affordable. Uh, not only affordable, but probably genuinely cheap. Gentlemen, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Shane Harris, who's author of The Watchers, The Rise of America's Surveillance State, and John Villasenor of the Brookings Institution. We contacted the Department of Homeland Security for their perspective or reaction. They didn't get back to us for an interview or comment. Prison Nation. For Mumia Abu Jamal, I'm Mark Lamont Hill. Every prison is the same, and every prison is different. Every prison has its own mythos. Think Alcatraz, Sing Sing, Attica. Its own rhythm, hard, cool, tight, relaxed, severe, or supermax. And every prison is run by class, as in how courts or administrators have classified a crime according to whose interests are threatened. For example, in every hole in the state where all death rows are cited, men and women with the worst sentences live the least contentious lives. If they can afford it, really if their family can, they have TV, radio, and other amenities, if they can afford it. Some work prison jobs for the glorious wage of around 35 to $50 a month. Yes, a month. There, every mind is attuned to the ultimate sentence, death. And against such an immensity, amenities seem trivial. Yet death row is a class, as in classification, and beyond it lies a chasm of classifications that are as maddening as they are mundane. AC, administrative custody, DC, disciplinary custody, PC, protective custody, and beyond. All are lockup statuses. All have the distinct rules of what is or isn't allowed, and all have degrees of repression. Every major U.S. history book has described America as virtually classless, with rigid class distinctions more a British or European thing. How then can a nation that claimed classlessness give birth to such institutions that are so riddled with class differentiations? Because America never was classless, and not only did it have rigid classes, it had and has caste, more rigid than stone. Millions of blacks live in such a caste, as noted recently in Michelle Alexander's excellent work, The New Jim Crow. The ruling, wealthy class built prisons and courts to protect them and their wealth from the masses. 
They also built the ideological illusion of classlessness, which is maintained through their media. They brayed about freedom while erecting the most massive prison complex, the prison industrial complex, this earth has ever seen. They built Prison Nation. For Mumia Abu-Jamal, I'm Mark Lamont Hill. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. It's the Onion Radio News. A series of serial killer killings rocks the serial killer community. This is Doyle Redland reporting. The discovery of the mutilated remains of serial killer Henry the Wrigleyville Stabber Fisk has shaken homicidal maniacs throughout northern Indiana and ushered in a new era of fear, suspicion, and mistrust. Joseph Cash Mason, known to the media as Pickaxe Pete, is nervous. I'm on the edge all the time. I go into my basement and my sausage machine appears to have been moved. I can't even follow a scout troop out to Mount Wakoka because I'm terrified to be in the woods. Even the voice in my head is telling me to lay low for a while. Services for Fisk will be held at his house, after which he will be cut up and buried in the dirt floor of his crawl space. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. There's something really sinister going on down in Maricopa County, Arizona, where Sheriff Joe Arpaio has acted like some two-bit dictator for way too long. The most recent scandal is the death in jail of inmate Ernest Atencio. Sheriff's deputies had tasered him and then put him in a cell naked when he was essentially non-responsive. He died on December 20th after being on life support. And he's not the first wrongful death in that county jail, nor is he the first Latino to be singled out. Actually, Arpaio has made a habit of harassing Latinos, according to the U.S. Department of Justice. He's been treating all Latinos as if they're all undocumented, and he punishes anyone who fails to understand English commands. These unconstitutional practices are harming innocent Latinos, the Justice Department report says. Arpaio has also made a sadistic practice of housing inmates in tents outside rather than in proper indoor facilities. One day last summer, it got as hot as 145 degrees in the tents. He's also made inmates wear pink underwear and reduce their meals to twice a day rather than three times a day. It's way past time either for the voters of Maricopa County to oust Arpaio or for the Justice Department to prosecute him. We can't have lawless sheriffs in America. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
back in 2010, there was a 14-year-old girl who uh, was very depressed because her grandfather had just died, her parents were getting a divorce, so she decided to run away from home. This 14-year-old is from Dallas, right? Um, after she ran away from home, she got arrested because she uh, stole some money. As a result, uh, the police questioned her, they asked her what her identity was, and she gave them a completely fake name. Little did she know that she gave them the fake name of an undocumented immigrant that the officials were looking for. So they decided, oh, okay, you're that person, we're just going to deport you. They deported her to Colombia, even though she was a U.S. citizen. They didn't investigate the case. Uh, thankfully, her grandmother, who's been searching for her since 2010, was able to find her. But they literally just found her because of Facebook. <laughs> but this story is amazing. Like, ICE officials were like, oh, so it turns out that you're so-and-so? You're actually black and don't speak any Spanish at all, but we're going to deport you to Colombia anyway. What's the name she made up? Um, they just say fake name. I don't know what the name of the person is. Because, you know, the, you know that it was probably like, you know, let's just make up a name, like Angela Rodriguez. Yeah. Oh, guilty. Let's go. Off to Colombia <laughs> you go. I mean, how, there's no way that that name isn't held by like at least 78 people in that state. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I'm saying? It, how kind of a, what kind of a unique name could it be that they were like, oh, it's definitely her, even though she appears to be black and totally American, and doesn't even speak Spanish. I'm sure she's faking it. Angela Rodriguez, off you go to Colombia. Here's another twisty twist of the story. She gave them the name of a 22-year-old undocumented immigrant. She is 14 years old. Like, it doesn't take much. Like, just a little investigation. It really doesn't take much. But the ICE officials, who cares? It's just a young black kid. Let's just deport her to Colombia. Hispanic, black, what difference does it make? Off you go. Off you go. Now, look, keeping it real, okay? If she looked waspy wasp, right, would they have been like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's definitely Angelia Rodriguez. Would Off she get go. arrested for stealing the money in the first place? Maybe. I mean, let's hope so. If she's stealing, that's not right. right. Let's hope they, they would enforce the law against anyone. But uh, it's just crazy. How long was she in Colombia before they found her? Uh, over a year. That's unbelievable. Think about that. Over a year. They just found her. That, I, that's the most amazing part of that story. She probably couldn't find her way back home because she doesn't speak Spanish. How scary is that, though, to be a 14-year-old in a foreign country, you don't speak Spanish, and it's Colombia, which has an issue with drug trafficking, right? I would be scared for my life. Yeah. Imagine they did that to, like, make up a different thing. Like, they're like, oh, yeah, you said your name was Abdullah Abdullah? Well, that's funny, because we were looking for Abdullah Abdullah. Off you go to Afghanistan. <laughs> and you're like, she's in the wait, 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 I, I don't speak Pashtun or Urdu or anything. Off you go. <laughs> Disaster. Yes. Yeah. How often does this happen to uh, Whitney Worthington Dowling the third? Right. Yeah, that's what I was just asking with the waspy wasp. No Never. way. Look, uh, when I was a prosecutor, this happened all the time. All the time. Every Disaster. single week, without it, without exception, uh, we would get um, a uh, I don't know a Juan Gonzalez arrested in court, and I look at the case file. I'm like. Juan Gonzalez, this guy is uh, 5'4", 140 pounds. Uh, the one that's on the arrest report, or, or, or the one that's on the, on the warrant is 6'2", 240. It's not the same guy. And like, yeah, well, whatever. Oh. And, uh, and then the bad thing is if you're picked up on a Friday, you gotta spend the whole weekend in jail before we have the hearing on Monday. And let me tell you, man, it is outrageous how often this happens and how 
not angry they are. I mean, like these poor people, um, they just think, well, that's just part of being poor. I mean, they, they are victimized all the time, and they just don't even get that mad about it. Because if that happened to me, I would, I would lose it. Oh if my I spent a weekend in jail for, for nothing, I would go crazy. But Anna, this is the reason why we shouldn't have too many laws like anti-bullying laws and all that kind of stuff. Because it will be abused all the time. All the time. Right. You think they're going to bust uh, Whitney Worthington III for bullying? Or are they going to bust uh, Juan Gonzalez? Or Tyrone Williams? So, think about it. Okay, so you're What races are those three people? Well, Tyrone Williams, he's, he's Asian. Oh, okay. okay. They're not blah, are they? All right. Uh, all right. Can we have a de- debate about mandated reporting right now? <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, please, please, please. By the uh, way, every time we eat, Tom sent me a story yesterday. Tom Hank, not the actor, our media director, media director, whatever he is. Uh, he, sent, he sends me an article about um, a story that we're actually going to do later about how, like, different municipalities are thinking about passing laws that would ban eating behind the wheel, right? And then, like, Steve responds to that email saying, see, this is why we can't have mandated reporters. <laughs> it's a perfect example. Yeah, Steve's on the warpath on that he issue. Is, he is, he's not going to let it go. But anyway, all right, we should take a quick break, no? Yeah. I feel I had one other thing to say about Wendy Worthington III. Oh, yeah, yesterday we recorded the next episode of The Point, which, by the way, you should check out on Town Square, our new channel on YouTube. Uh, and... Um, well, one of the guys on there was an award-winning cartoonist uh, who happens to be Blah. And, uh, <laughs> and he was talking about how one time he was getting, uh, you know, all these cops had chased him down. And it was like four or five cop cars, and they're treating him harshly because they were looking for a six-foot black man that was doing robberies in there. He's like, yeah, that's half the town, right? And, so, and then his white friend had come running in when he saw that, and he's like, was outraged, like, how could you do this to my friend? It's obviously not him. And it took him a second to, uh, to be like, why is my friend outraged? Mm-hmm. Because they come at it from such different perspectives. As a black guy, he's used to getting pulled over all the time. You know, like, well, of course. So it's four or five cop cars come, maybe it was, okay, it's the most standard thing in the world. Whereas the white guy's like, gee, what? How could you? This is the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's the difference in perspectives. It's, uh, it's w- what was precipitated that conversation is one of the points we were doing on the show was Ellen Barkin being outraged at being pushed by the cops on Occupy Wall Street. Like, they push everybody else. They, like, slam them, et cetera. Everybody moves out with their life. Ellen Barkin was, and she yelled at the cop, get your motherfucking hands off me, mm-hmm. right? And look, I'm glad she's on the right side of it, et cetera. But to her, it was, like, outrageous. Like, she'd never seen anything like that. Imagine a cop... And he had pushed her just a little bit, right? Like, move to the side. Does that to a black guy, and the guy says, get your motherfucking hands off me, right? Mm-hmm. What's going to happen next? There'll be a very different <laughs> response. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So. But you know, if I were a poor black person. Well, you just work harder, that's it. You just study harder, right, yeah? <laughs> All right. By the I, way, he mentioned that same, what was his name? Keith. 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 Ah, it starts with a K also. I just, is it Keith Knight? Keith Knight, Keith Knight. God, we're yeah. such losers. Uh, we just had him on last night. Yeah, he was great. And uh, JR, he brought up the same article, the Forbes article, if I were a poor black kid. I was like, man, you stepped in JR Jackson's wheelhouse. 
Yeah, go ahead. All right, look, I got to tell the story because uh, this is a personal story. This similar thing happened to me in law school. A very good friend of mine, African-American guy, awesome guy, just like the nicest guy. And right after class, he would always volunteer to help uh, indigent people get access to legal services. Uh, so when he, when he was moving, I went to law school at UCLA, Westwood, mostly white people. Uh, so he couldn't move until nighttime. So he packed up his U-Haul, was moving, and he gets pulled over by, by the cops. And the cops say, whose stuff you got back there? He goes, it's my stuff. And the cops are like, oh, bullshit. Uh, get out of the car and open up the back. He's, and, and, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're law students, so he thinks he has some rights. He goes, look, do you have probable cause? And pff, big, big mistake. The cop pulls him out of the car, pulls out his gun, puts it to my friend's temple, and says, I will shoot you in the fucking head, you stupid N-word. And all I got to do is put a knife in your hand and say, you attacked me first, and no one will take your word over mine. So shut the fuck up and open up the back. So he did. And then he stood there while the cop called it in and asked, for, asked the uh, station if there were any uh, reported burglaries. There was nothing, of course. It was all his stuff. And then he's like, all right, get the fuck out of here and send him on his way. So the next day, when he told me the story, I was absolutely livid. Okay, I freaking lost it. I was like, this is bullshit. I was like, I'm going with you to the police station right now where I filed a former complaint. He's like, Steve, you act like this never happens to black people. He goes, this, this is a little bit more outrageous than normal, but this shit happens all the time. And I was like, what? And I, I literally couldn't believe it. But it's all part of this whole white privilege that we enjoy on a daily basis without realizing the difficulties and, and adverse situations that other races and classes go through all the time. It's really sad, actually. Yeah, and, and look, that, that's a mistake I often made when I was younger. And, and funny enough, even before that incident with debates that I would have with Steve, where I was like, why would cops plant anything? Oh, my God, how incredibly naive was I, right? So now think about that story, right? He hasn't heard of any burglary in the area. The cop hasn't. And if you're a logical person, you got to think there's like a, at least an 80% chance that it's this guy's stuff. Mm -hmm. In reality, it's like a 98% chance. It's, the, it's a U-Haul truck. Who robs things in a U-Haul truck, right? You move in a U-Haul truck. I mean, there's such an overwhelming percentage chance that it's his stuff. But he thinks, who gives a shit? It's a black guy. I don't care if there's a 99.9% .9 chance that it's his stuff. I, I'm going to do this anyway. And so what if he's innocent? I and if, imagine if it was a middle-aged white guy in Westwood. <laughs> you're going to do that to a white guy. You're going to put a gun to his head. Okay? In Westwood. No, I don't think so, right? Yeah, uh, one quick story. That friend of mine, he's now a judge. What now? Uh -huh. He won. <laughs> and all these stupid-ass uh, cops who are racist to him, they have to go kiss his ass and ask him to sign off on warrants and all that kind of stuff. I love that story. CJR, if I were a poor black kid, I'd become a judge. Hey Jay, this is Mike from Philadelphia. I'd like to try to respond to your uh, veganism versus white privilege. I would uh, like to dedicate this to my father, Master Sergeant Eugene Grant, uh, who recently passed away, which did cause me to miss a couple of your podcasts. I think uh, Daryl's statement is one of generational issues for uh, African Americans in this country. 
My father was uh, in the Air Force for 23 years. When we were growing up, uh, much, much older, he also told us a story about when he had first joined the Air Force, went through basic training in the bus stopped in Texas. He wasn't allowed to eat with the rest of the soldiers. He had to go to the back of the restaurant to get his meal, take his meal back onto the bus and eat while the white soldiers ate in the restaurant. This was Jim Crow. Now, Jim Crow was a set of laws and a set of societal norms that devalued African-Americans. One of the essence of living in this society was the devaluation of black men, women, and children, while at the same time giving animals rights, i.e. a man's horse was stolen, you could go to jail. A man's dog was shot, you could go to jail. However, the murder of African-Americans was not something prosecutable. It was actually something to be celebrated. Hundreds and thousands of African men, women, and children that were murdered during Jim Crow via lynchings, via destroying of towns, i.e. Rosewood, exists within American society. So some African Americans, especially older African Americans, have issues in regards to animal rights versus human rights. As you once said, uh, attention for social issues is finite. The fact that some individuals advocate animal rights, why we as a nation and as a global society still have issues with human rights, some folks may find objectionable. Hope that helps. Hope that uh, gives some kind of breakdown. But again, I think Daryl's issue is regards to human rights versus animal rights. Veganism is the pursuit of animal rights. The pursuits of animal rights, why we still have issues with human rights, I think some folks may find objectionable. Hope this helps. Have a great day. Hey, Jay, this is Colin from Cleveland calling. I was just listening to the uh, last podcast, and I was listening to your final comments on the economics of slavery. I'd like to point out, too, another thing that we don't really uh, put in our the forefront of our minds enough is the political plight that the that you know black Americans have suffered. Um, you talk about the 1800s; they you know blacks were treated as property. Well, go back to the Continental Congress when Southern states had the Constitution counting slaves as three-fifths of a man solely for political purpose so that they can gain some bargaining power in setting up this country because the whites in the South were a minority on these big plantations, you know, as far as land goes, as opposed to in the North, these very urban, crowded cities. They, the South was, was not about to have the North have more voting power, so they literally used black people as pawns to, to, for their own political clout, which, I mean... <laughs> you know, and this was all done with our founding fathers, who I'm tired of. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love my country. I love what we have. But I don't like people turning the founding fathers into flawless uh, superheroes. They were men with some good ideas and some faults. And uh, I think more conservative than liberal are, are uh, guilty of painting this beautiful picture of uh, America as this utopia from day one. You know, if we don't really understand our history, and I mean the true history, we're never going to get better as a people. Love the show. Thanks, Jay. Hey, Jay, this is Mike again from Philadelphia. I wanted to clarify my previous message. I'm not advocating that I think 
people that are for animal rights have white privilege. Animal rights activists exist all over the world, all races, creeds, and colors. I, I think specifically within the American context, when you deal with the historical representation of African Americans and animal rights, we have a history of, at certain points, treating animals better than in both indigenous people and minorities in this country. That's why I think uh, the gentleman's call was, was in reference to. I, I think it's a misinterpretation of animal rights. I, I think um, advocating animal rights is actually a pretty noble cause. I have no issues with it as an African-American. I, I just think that older individuals and, and those of, of the older generations may have a stigma to it because it does relate to times when people were treated less than animals. Again, love the show. Great work. Uh, continue what you do. Thank you. Hi. Uh, love the show. My name is John Riley. I am calling from St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota. I want to comment on the uh, confusion about uh, Daryl's voicemail, about how vegetarians or vegans might not sympathize with the position of uh, certain disenfranchised people. When I was um, living in Oklahoma in high, during high school, I worked at a uh, camp, uh, like a violence prevention camp, for underprivileged kids in inner city Oklahoma City. And, you know, it was operated by Skyline Urban Ministries, which is a, a great a church uh, ministry that reaches out to the communities and supports a bunch of different progressive causes. Uh, and so we were teaching nonviolence and um, conflict resolution as a way to prevent kids from getting wrapped up in gang violence and stuff in the inner cities. And we were talking about different kinds of violence, and I was a vegan uh, at the time. So I said, you know, violence against animals. And we talked about that, and the, the people who run the camp, like I said, are very supportive of progressive causes. We want to talk about that. Some of the kids were, were saying, you know, maybe what if I don't want to be a vegetarian or something? Other other ways, they said, well, yeah, you can, you know, maybe buy free-range meat. And as soon as I said that, I was immediately embarrassed because I realized these kids aren't going to go home and, and tell, their, tell their parents we need to stop, start shopping at Whole Foods and buying soy products or especially, you know, free-range meat because all that's a lot more expensive. And uh, I realized that folks who are in disenfranchised communities like that, for you know, a lot of the reason that those kids were there was because we provided a free ham and cheese sandwich. They're not in a position to be consumer activists because the whole idea of consumer activism sort of assumes this bourgeois subjectivity where we can use our money to vote for industries that we want to. Well, that means that folks with less money have a lot less voting power. So somehow. I guess I guess the the kind of moral judgment that you might pass on someone who's not really in a position to start think to to globalize their consumer activities because for them they're just struggling to make ends meet just feels condescending in some ways. And so I don't think that caring that the dignity of, of you know all uh, life on planet Earth is necessarily mutually exclusive with with uh, goals to alleviate poverty and uh, more immediate uh, you know human violence within those kind of communities, but it just yeah, uh, you know it's necessary to empathize, and of course I don't just agree with uh, <laughs> Daryl's claims that vegans are like the left Al Qaeda or the left um, Tea Party or anything like that. But uh, but you just have you just have to empathize that that you can't expect everybody to be a consumer advocate when when they're just struggling to 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 get food on the table, uh, and especially choices with, with you know what kind of food they can afford. 
Um, so that's all I had to say. Love the show, and um, hope, hopefully I could, that helps gives, shed some light on the, on the issue. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So this conversation continues to be excellent through the voicemails. Uh, you may have noticed that I let them run long today because we're getting such great perspectives, you know, everything from the long-distant historical perspective to the much more recent historical perspective. And then the flip side of the coin of the poor white guy really putting his foot in his mouth. And, uh, you know, so it's it's a great mix that, that we're hearing from. And the, uh, the the last voicemail we heard was it's like a great jumping off point for the question I want to ask because I want to bring up the idea of context. So basically, I mean, it's obviously we all understand it's much more complicated than this. But it, the, the two things that I'm basically hearing you could break it down into two two areas is the historical sensitivity to the relationship between African Americans and animals and how they've been compared uh, you know throughout American history and then the more the economic slash opportunity side and so in in modern day that often runs along racial lines, but it doesn't have to. Obviously, there's plenty of poor white kids out there, white people in general, who uh, would resent the idea of being told that they should change their diet because they're just focused on surviving, basically. So when it comes to the racial, like the historical racial issue, I've been appreciating the comments from people who say that those two things aren't mutually exclusive. You know, if you are supportive of animal rights, it doesn't mean that you don't care about human and, and you know, interracial uh, rights and equality. And so that's where I come down on it. But it's certainly excellent to have that other perspective and understand why the sensitivity is there. And it's obviously a, a very legitimate sensitivity to have based on the historical context. Uh, what I want to talk about in more detail, though, is the economic and opportunity perspective, which which is basically arguing that it is a you know a source of either white or like middle or upper middle class privilege to say people should change their diet because it either takes more money and believe me I get that plenty of vegans will you know refute the idea that it actually costs more money uh, and they'll say that that's a myth so we're not going to debate that but uh, there, there's the issue of if you wanted to su supplant the traditional American diet with vegan alternatives so like fake meat and you know all those sorts of things. In that case, it is more expensive. So there's the the expense portion of it, and then just the knowledge opportunity. You have to know about the issue. You have to research about it. You have to like retrain yourself how to eat if you haven't grown up in a vegan or vegetarian family. And so those are the opportunity costs that very oftentimes. African Americans don't have. They, they don't grow up in a context where it is easy or, or where it makes sense for them to go and do lots and lots of research to learn how to eat differently when they may even live in an area where they don't have access to you know good vegetarian food. So as I said, I wanted to bring up the idea of context. So as we just heard in the last voicemail, that was a great example of a really horrible context to try to bring up 
You know, like if, if you're talking to a bunch of inner city kids and you say, you should go home and tell your parents that you need to stop eating meat and, and supplant everything with uh, vegetarian and vegan alternatives, like that's it's offensive, <laughs> frankly. And and so the caller, you know, recognized that immediately after he said it, he realized, oh, my God, I that was such a horrible thing to say. So that's a great example of a bad context. But I want to know how much of a difference it makes when you're speaking about it in a more conducive context. So this discussion of white privilege obviously started as a response to a discussion about veganism that was happening on this show. So this show is our context, and I don't think it's going too far out on a limb to suggest that a politically-minded podcast is a far cry from a inner-city youth anti-violence camp. So it's great to understand the sensitivities about it, but I just wonder what what you guys think about the idea that it is really not nearly as insensitive to talk about and try to persuade people to you know be vegan in this context. Now keep in mind again, we're not debating the virtues of veganism. And one of the biggest ironies of all of this is, although I generally support the position, I'm not a vegan myself. So that's not what's happening here. I'm really just asking the question about context and and sensitivity and where it's appropriate and how it changes from one location to another. So, you know, we heard from the caller in his context, and it, it has been suggested that talking about it on the show is also insensitive, but I wonder how much that is really true when those who should be offended by it are very, very rarely going to be the same people listening to this show. So that's really the question of the day that I would love to hear back from you guys on. I, I genuinely don't have an answer. I, I just, I have a sense that it must make a difference. And so I would love insights from anyone on how and how much does it make a difference. So that's going to be it for today. Please continue to support the show. Tell everyone you know about it. Become a member. Bookmark the Amazon link to do all your shopping. By the way, thanks to everyone who has already done that. You're like the one niche group of people who don't get thanked. But uh, but to everyone who has bookmarked the Amazon link and done all of your shopping, you know whether it be holiday shopping or regular everyday shopping, you have no idea how much of a difference it makes. Uh, it is an incredibly effective and easy way to support the show. Uh, so, so thanks to everyone who has done that in the past and, and considers doing it in the future. It really does make a huge difference. Thanks, of course, to all the members and all the donors who help keep the show going. It is, of course, your direct donations that really go to keep the show afloat. Everyone can stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. You can donate your Facebook and Twitter accounts to us at donateyouraccount.com slash best of the left. It is simply a very, very easy and effective way to help us spread the word about the show and all the details about that are on that site, of course. And for information on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Shining sheep, the only 
风。